Morning Journey. How are y'all doing today? Great. It's really good to be in the presence of every single one of you, especially our guests. And isn't it especially great to be in the presence of our great and magnificent God? He's here and what a privilege it is to meet with him. I'm just going to apologize right off the top for my voice. Uh, just forgive me. The sermon's only two hours long, so you only have to suffer for a couple of hours fighting a head cold. And a friend was at a meeting with me earlier this week, and he said, I went to shake his hand to greet him at the meeting, and he said, uh, don't shake my hand, I'm just getting over the crud, you know. And I think he might have fibbed to me. I think he might have been fully sick in that moment, and it leapt on to me. We have, as Bob talked about a few minutes ago, been talking for over a month now about co-journeying with the people in our lives. That is, coming alongside people, helping them come to faith in Jesus Christ. It's been a fantastic series from my vantage point. I just want to say how grateful I am for Bob and for Shana, for their leadership, for their communication, for their partnership. We could not have a better team on this stuff with us than they. And so I'm just really, really proud of them. I'm really proud of our church. I'm especially proud of those of you who have really, like really engaged through this series. Lots of you I know from the very first week you started praying for people in your life who you desire more than anything else to see come to faith in Jesus Christ. And you texted in their names and their initials and like thousands of those came in and you're praying and we've been praying and that's a beautiful thing. Some of you I know then have taken the next step and this one gets a little more dicey, right? Like anybody can pray. But then some of you have taken the next step of faith and you've actually shared your faith in Jesus Christ with some of those people. And you used words to do it. You didn't just say, well, you know, I'll just trust that those people are gonna see my life and how I live and they'll just sort of magically, mystically connect to Jesus because of my life. No, no. Lots of you stepped right out on the ragged edge of faith and you had a faith conversation. You used words to declare the gospel to the people in your life. You've been having faith conversations and you've been texting us about those, emailing us about those, and that is a beautiful thing. Some of you, you took the time from last weekend's prompting and you wrote out your story, your testimony, your faith adventure, 400 words or less, and you talked about how it is that you came to faith so that when you're in one of those faith-sharing, co-journing conversations, you can just have your story, like, tip of your mind, ready to go, way to go to all of you. And that invitation still stands, by the way. If you have yet to write out your story, 400 words or less, no 10-page tomes, okay? None of that. 400 words or less. Send that in. My story at journeyweb.net and some of our team from around here will start what is really a coaching conversation with you all around your story. And I just want to say again, to all of you who have really engaged in this process, way to go. I believe to the core of my being that you are in a fantastic place to be used by God to help connect your friends and your family and your neighbors and your coworkers and on and on it goes to faith in Jesus Christ. And that's what this life is all about. That's everything that this life is all about. The biggest deal going on planet Earth right there. Today, to wrap this Cojourners series up, I want to talk with you about the bridge builder role, this bridge builder capacity that the Cojourning series invites us into. 
We want to talk about how building bridges that span the obstacles that keep people from coming to faith in Jesus Christ is absolutely essential for all of us as we cojourn with people. The really short story is that you and I must be bridge builders. We must always be seeking to help those who we're co-journeying with continue on their journey toward a relationship with Jesus Christ. Maybe you've had this experience before. I have. You're in a spiritual conversation with somebody. You think that conversation is going just great. You're all excited. You're going like, any day now this person is going to give their heart and life to Jesus Christ. I'm going to get to help them step across the line of faith. And you're like, any time, any time we're so close. And then all of a sudden, kind of out of nowhere, your friend starts talking about all of their intellectual objections to faith in Jesus Christ. Have you had this experience? And you're sort of on your heels, right? You're going like, oh my gosh, where in the world did that come from? And then your very next thought, or at least your very next thought, should be, oh my gosh, how in the world am I going to answer that question? How in the world am I going to speak to that objection? How in the world am I going to help them over that obstacle? It's just like if any of us are out in the backcountry, we're traversing, we're on our way to a certain beautiful destination, and you come to some obstacle, perhaps a wide, deep river that we just can't wade across, or perhaps a sheer cliff ravine, we, we can't get across it. What you start thinking in that situation is, I gotta figure out a way to span this impediment that's keeping me from getting to where I wanna go. And that very thing, see, happens to people all the time on their spiritual journey as they're exploring faith in Jesus Christ. There they are, they're rummaging through stuff, they're conquering all this stuff, you're having faith conversations, and then sometime, out of nowhere it seems, they bump into something. And that's something that they bump into unless they figure it out, unless we help them figure it out, is very likely going to keep them from coming to faith in Christ. And you know the story. There can be a variety of things that are obstacles for people coming to faith. Sometimes it is. It's an intellectual objection. It just sort of shuts down their exploration of faith. Other times the obstacle can be some sort of emotional baggage. They've picked up something along life's path. Somewhere, sometimes, someone hurt them in a way that they just carry that pain. Maybe it was somebody from a church. Maybe it was somebody espousing faith in Jesus Christ, and they carry that wound with them. That thing is gonna get smack dab in the way of their coming to faith in Jesus Christ. There can be a whole host of things that become obstacles to people coming to faith, and our role as spiritual guides to all those in our world who we're helping explore faith is to help them build bridges on their behalf over those obstacles so their spiritual journey can continue absolutely unimpeded. Now when we talk about bridge building, there's this word that we use around Christianity. Some of us probably automatically think of when we think about helping people build bridges to faith. Anyone know what it is? It's an A word. I'll give you that clue. An A word. It's a bridge building word around Christianity. Big A word. I heard no one apologetics, right? This big, heavy, weighty word, right? Apologetics, it's a bridge building thing, apologetics. The dictionary definition of that word apologetics is this. The systematic, argumentative discourse in defense of a doctrine. That's apologetics. And you see in the church for a few hundred years, that has been the primary thrust of Christianity's bridge building efforts the systematic, argumentative discourse in defense of Christianity. 
We've really taken up the Enlightenment's approach to reason, haven't we? We've set about defending and arguing the Christian faith through rational discourse. And our reasoning for that approach goes something like this. We say, all truth is God's truth, thus a rational Enlightenment approach, rational inquiry, will just then naturally lead people more and more and more toward God. We'll just reason our way to God. We'll just use reason to prove God. That's been our approach for hundreds and hundreds of years in the church. That's been our primary bridge-building occupation. The trouble, however, with that approach is that we cannot prove faith in God in logically compelling ways. We can't. We cannot prove faith in God in logically compelling ways. It is faith, after all, isn't it? And faith is faith, and faith can never be the proving grounds for any sort of rational analysis. And we must understand this, that God cannot ever be revealed in our human understanding, nor in our scientific prowess, nor in anything that we ever achieve. God himself, maker of heaven and earth, the one who breathed life into every single one of us, he is only and entirely revealed in the cross of Jesus Christ. That's how he comes to us. That's how he reveals himself to us. And you know what some people call the cross of Jesus Christ? They call it utter foolishness. Utter foolishness. And so you see, that means for any of us then to approach God, for any of us to get to know God, we must approach him in humility, humbly. If I don't know you, But if I want to get to know you, you know what I'm first thing going to do? I'm going to come to you in all humility. I'm not going to saunter up and I'm not going to power up and I'm not going to think I'm some kind of big deal because I'm not. I'm going to get to know you very, very humbly. I'm going to ask you humble questions about who you are and your life. Because you see, it's only when we're humble with one another and getting to know one another that we're willing to disclose anything about each other in conversation. And this humility deal is especially true when it comes to approaching someone who is my superior. If, for instance, I want to get to know the President of the United States, I would have to approach him very, very humbly, very courteously, very respectfully. My relationship, if I ever got to have one with the president, would be on their terms, not mine. I wouldn't be able to saunter into the Oval Office all proud and haughty and sort of say, I'm going to investigate you from my position of superiority. I don't get to do that. Scientists, if you traffic in the sciences at all, you guys have this down. You scientists, you know this really, really Well, scientists, you always approach your data with great humility. You have to. You have to be incredibly guarded, incredibly careful about never inserting your, you might have a view, but you don't get to insert it into your investigation. You're humble before the data, willing to hear whatever facts the investigation reveals as you uncover one by one by one, and it's the exact same deal when anyone, and I mean anyone, approaches God. Just think about how incredibly humbling it is to approach 
the God of the universe. Humility. We're absolutely and entirely dependent upon him disclosing himself to us. Because you see, the only reason that anyone gets to know God is because he, full of grace and mercy, abounding in patience and long-suffering, chose to reveal himself through the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not in any way arguing that there is not a place for rational apologetics in Christianity. Please hear me clearly. There is a place for rational apologetics in Christianity. But the ambition of that kind of an approach, an enlightenment approach, must not be simply to persuade unbelievers. Rather, see, the role of rational apologetics is to reveal that unbelief is most often a problem of the heart, not a problem of the head. Lots of people claim, you may have been in a conversation like this, that the obstacle to their coming to faith in Jesus Christ is like the problem of evil. How could a good and loving God allow so much evil in this world? How could he allow so much suffering, right? You've heard that one. Sometimes in faith conversations, you'll bump into this obstacle of people going, I just can't buy the miracles of the, these wild, I mean, this guy spent days in the belly of a giant, seriously, giant fish, really? And it hangs them up. Some people, they hang up on the exclusive truth claims of Jesus Christ. How can that guy, Jesus, say that he is the way, the truth, and the life? No one comes to the Father. How can he... How can he say that? And you see what rational apologetics most often reveal is that those objections are usually not the real cause of unbelief. But what rational apologetics is very useful for is stripping away the excuses and very often, this gets a little hard, very often revealing rebellious hearts. Right? Because we all have rebellious hearts. There's a comic in the newspaper a few weeks back that illustrates this really, really well. Do you read Pearls Before Swine? It's a fantastic comment. You're looking at me like, what are you talking about? So let me set this up for you. Uh, these two missionaries, uh, I don't know which faith persuasion they're from. They are wearing ties, white shirts, and backpacks. Think they have badges on. I don't know. And they come knocking on little mouse's door. It's kind of irrelevant. They're just missionaries. They're out evangelizing, right? And they knock on little mouse's door and they say, good morning, sir. Mind if we come in and tell you a little bit about our religion? Mouse guy says, well, sure. It just so happens I'm currently searching for a religion. Wow, cool, wonderful. What are you looking for, they ask. He says, I'm looking for a religion where I can drink a lot of beer and punch the people I don't like. And he goes inside. The missionaries have left, obviously. And he says, my spiritual search continues. Not there. What's the point? I want to keep doing just what I want to keep doing without anybody telling me otherwise. I want to do my thing, and I don't want anybody telling me how to live my life. Really. That's the most frequent objection to people coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, very few people will ever admit that. right? Because saying that is just like, whoa. Whoa so obvious but at the end of the day it's most often all about I want to do what I want to do and you're not gonna and he's not gonna and no one's gonna Soren Kierkegaard put it this way 
People try to persuade us that the objections against Christianity spring from doubt. The objections against Christianity, rather, spring from insubordination, the dislike of of obedience, rebellion against all authority. As a result, people have hitherto been beating the air in the struggle against objections because they have fought intellectually with doubt instead of fighting morally with rebellion. It's an issue of our hearts, primarily. If you've got a Bible, I invite you to turn to Acts chapter 17. We're going to watch the masterful ministry of a true bridge builder, the Apostle Paul, unfold in this text. Let me set it up a bit for you. Paul, if you know his backstory, had already started a few uproars. He's managed to cause a few riots in a few previous cities. He's not a rioter. He's a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's a church planner. He's a follower of Jesus Christ. And he's causing uproars and riots in cities. And so someone in his inner circle thought, you know, it'd be real wise probably for us to give Paul a break. He's probably just stressed out, overloaded. And so they said, let's send Paul to the city of Athens. Maybe he'll stay out of trouble there. He'll get a little sun on him and take a holiday, Paul. Get a break. But we know about Paul. He's not real good at taking breaks from gospel ministry, is he? And we pick up the story, Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens... He was deeply troubled by all the idols he saw everywhere in the city. He went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles. And he spoke daily in the public square to all who happened to be there. He also had a debate with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Now I want to talk to you about us building bridges is not debating with people. You're never, I think Shana said it a few weeks back, you're never gonna argue anybody into faith in Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, if you're arguing with somebody about faith, you're already losing, right? Paul, he does it here. But these are philosophers, Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. He engages them. And it was civil debate, by the way. When he told them about Jesus and his resurrection, they said, what's this babbler trying to say with all these strange ideas he's picked up? They're like calling Paul all new agey. Like this new age quack. This guy rambling on. Others said, he seems to be preaching about some foreign gods. Interesting, people of Athens say. So they take him to the high council of the city. Up on this place called Mars Hill. That's where they take Paul. Come and tell us about this new teaching, they said. You are saying some rather strange things. We want to know what it's all about. It should be explained that all the Athenians, as well as the foreigners in Athens, seem to spend all their time discussing the latest ideas. They just trafficked in the latest ideas. And so Paul, standing on Mars Hill, standing before the council, he addressed them as follows. Men of Athens, I noticed that you were very religious in every way. For as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines. One of your altars to one of these gods had this inscription on it, to an unknown God. This God whom you worship without knowing is the one I'm telling you about. It's him. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples and human hands cannot serve his needs for he has no needs. All these shrines, all these altars, God doesn't need all of that. 
Because you see, he himself gives life and breath to everything. He satisfies every need. From one man, he created all the nations throughout the whole earth. That's real power, isn't it? He decided beforehand when they should rise, when they should fall. And he determined their boundaries. You didn't. He did. His purpose was for the nations, watch this, to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. Not in all of these other little g gods do we live and move and breathe and exist. It's only in Yahweh. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone. God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times, but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed, and he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. That's Jesus. He's coming back. And he's coming back not so you can judge him, men of Athens, but so that he can judge you. Are you ready? He's asking. When they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, some laughed in contempt. They mocked him. Others said, we want to hear more about this later. Beautiful thing. And that ended Paul's discussion with them. But some joined him and became believers. Among them were Dionysius, a member of the council, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So as the story sets up, Paul finds his way into the city of Athens, and he's disturbed to the core of his being by everything that he sees. He's walking into town. He would have seen no less than 30,000 different gods. 30,000 gods were registered in the city of Athens alone. 30,000 gods. They all had temples built to them. They all had land purchased for them. They all had feasts and festivals, holidays, worship of every sort and every kind would have been going on. And Paul's soul is churned up, deeply disturbed. And he responds perfectly to the stirring in his soul. His heart, see, was breaking for the people in Athens. His heart was breaking for their plight. My gosh, they're so confused. And he does this really cool thing. He doesn't condemn them. He doesn't picket them. He doesn't set about preaching against how dumb and ignorant and stupid and silly. Uh-uh. As Paul's heart was breaking for the depth of their lostness, he has to proclaim Jesus to them. I gotta tell you. It's a fantastic lesson to all of us. We like to sometimes look on our culture and get all powered up and get all superior and get all haughty and like, well, people are just so... Why don't follow Paul's example and let the plight of people who are far from God, let it break our hearts, let it wreck us. Just like it wrecked Paul. He has to proclaim Jesus and so he does. Crowds gather, 
They'd not ever heard about this new fangled God Paul's proclaiming. They knew all about the 30,000 other gods in Athens, but they hadn't heard about this God. They hadn't heard about Jesus Christ. They take him up on top of Mars Hill. He's standing in front of the Athenian philosophers, the leaders of the city, leaders really of the world. And he sets about this masterful bridge-building effort in just the same way we're talking about all of us building bridges. How's he do it? First of all, understand, just by virtue of him being where he is, on Mars Hill, speaking to the Athenian philosophers, he's building a bridge. He's bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ right into Athenian culture. He's on their turf. He didn't go set up in some church somewhere and say, hey, you come to me. He went to them. He took the gospel to them. He also spoke in their native tongue. He speaks Greek on their turf, building a bridge. Notice how he starts his declaration of the gospel. He says, men of Athens. That, by the way, is what any respected philosopher would have said in his day. Men of Athens. He was gracious. He was respectful. He was humble as he spoke to the Athenian court. Building bridges. The next thing he does is he goes to great lengths to quote some of their own poets. He understands their culture. He's smart. He builds a bridge to their world. And by quoting Athenian culture, there's this fundamental respect he's demonstrating. He's building a bridge. What else does he do? He says, I notice in every way you're religious. In every way you're religious. Some biblical translations say it this way. I notice you're very, very spiritual. That's true of our day. Lots of people are very, very spiritual, right? Paul tips his hat to the obvious truth. These are spiritual people. You're all spiritually inclined. You're on a spiritual journey, just like every single person on planet Earth since the very beginning of time. And he starts there, and he builds a bridge to Jesus Christ. And he says, I see that you're all about worshiping. I see that you're all about bowing down to all these different gods, But then I also see that you don't actually know the God you worship. I saw. I came into town and I walked right by it. Tomb, altar to an unknown God. And he builds a bridge from that point. From where they are to Jesus. A bridge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And of course we see the responses. Anytime we declare the gospel, there's going to be a range of responses. We see it. Some of the leaders there on Mars Hill, they're ticked off at this guy. They mock this Paul. You're a hick from the sticks. It's new age philosophy. Give me a break. They made fun of his faith in Jesus Christ. Okay. Others that day, they were curious, weren't they? They said, we want to hear, we want to know more about this Later, and what you have to understand as you're helping people cojourn toward Jesus Christ, that's pure gospel gold right there. Anytime anybody ever says to you, I want to hear more about that later, that's like a home run. Don't let that one get away from you. I was at a gathering a couple of weeks ago. I was having a conversation with a friend. He was asking me about my occupation and so And I said, tell me about your faith background. And he started in telling me about his faith background. 
I talked about my relationship with Jesus Christ, and then you know what he said? He said, could we talk about this more later? Absolutely. You better believe it. He's had a very busy schedule since that day. He's coming out of it right now, and I guarantee I'll be circling back with him to have that follow-up conversation. Anytime anybody in your life says, I want to talk more about that, you know that you're in a sweet spot where God's working, God's moving, you're onto something with the Lord. Paul would have gone with those folks who said, I want to know more about that. He would have done the very thing we're talking about. Circle back, have that conversation, answer the question, continue bridge building, helping people step closer and closer and closer to faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible also tells us that right then, right there, that day, some people came to faith in Christ. Bam. That's a beautiful thing. And I'm contending today that even for those men of Athens on that day, a couple of thousand years ago, the ones who rejected faith in Jesus Christ, their primary problem with the message of Jesus, it was not an intellectual problem. I'm offering that it was a problem of hearts that didn't, did not want to live under the reign of Jesus Christ. It was primarily a relational problem. And see, the relational issues that people have with Jesus, they're never gonna be answered by a rational apologetic. Rather, we need what these two guys, Chester and Timus, call a relational apologetic. We must offer a relational apologetic. Which means, see, that what commends the gospel of Jesus Christ to the lives of the people we're co-journing with is our lives lived in obedience to God and then a community life that reflects God's love, God's values. That's his church. That's us. Because, you see, no one in our life is ever going to be open to the gospel of Jesus Christ until they're convinced that it's actually a good thing to know God. We have to convince them of that First and foremost, that it's actually a good thing to know God. And that can be awfully condemning for we Christians sometimes, can't it? Because sometimes the things that we model, the behaviors that we flesh out, reveal to the world, I don't think that is such a good thing to know God. That's ugly. That's gnarly. If that's what it is to be a Christian, you can have it. So he asked the question, how do people see that it's good to know God? They see God's love inside of you. They see God's love all around you. They see God's love leaking out of, dripping off of his community, his church, us. It's a relational apologetic. And God's given all of us, every single one of us, some profoundly helpful resources as we seek to build bridges over obstacles in the lives of people we're co-journing with. And you don't have to have an apologetics degree. The first resource God has given every single one of us is his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God, see, it isn't you so much leading people to faith in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit's already been working in the lives of people in your world, in your life. You're just joining God where he's already working. It's a God-led activity. We're following him there. We're engaging with him there. And because it is a work of the Holy Spirit of God then, the second best resource God gives us is prayer. 
We better be praying about our faith conversations as much as we're having faith conversations. We ought to be on our knees asking God to continue to do the work that you know he's doing in the life of your friend, your neighbor, your coworker. God, would you continue to break through? I've been in this ongoing faith conversation, this co-journing conversation with an MSU student for over a year now. We get together on occasion, but we do an awful lot of texting. He texts me a really thoughtful, this kid has got more mental horsepower than I'd ever hoped to have. This kid is brilliant, and he knows world religions and faith inside and out. That's an amazing story this kid has. And he'll text me a question, this deep, thoughtful question that just drops me to the floor just about, oh my gosh. And I'll engage with him around that question, absolutely. But more than anything, I'm praying for my friend. I'm saying, God, would you continue? Obviously, you're doing something. These questions aren't just coming out of a vacuum. You're doing something. Will you continue to work in my friend's life? I want to see him come to know you. The third tool God's given us as we build bridges is gentle. Notice the verbiage gentle persuasion. This isn't a crowbar and sledgehammer operation. Gentle persuasion. Respectful. Humble. Gentle persuasion. And the fourth thing, God's given us the ability to answer the questions that are raised by our life of faith, our words of faith. Every single one of us should have things about our life, things that we do and things that we say that raise questions in the life of people around us who look on our lives and go, holy cow, what is that about? I heard you say, what in the world, where's that come from? That is so counter to anything I've ever heard. You gotta tell me more about that. Gospel gold right there. I'm not tooting our family's horn in any way, please. I'm gonna be really, really humble with this. But part of our story is just the sheer number of children that we have in our house. We had four biological kids. We adopted three kids from Ethiopia, one more from Ethiopia. Now we're adopting four sisters from the Congo. And people hear our story. That makes 12. You can't do the math. Sometimes I can't. And you wouldn't believe the conversations that Dana and I get to have with people who are far from God. They pick up on our story one way or another. And then they just say, What in the world? Where does that come from? And we get to talk about how Jesus compels us to care for the least of these, and this is just one way that we get to. And you have your story. We have ours. You have yours. How are you walking on the edge of faith in such a way that people are saying, oh my goodness, What is that all about? Where does that come from? And then you have a chance to answer the questions that are raised by your life, by your words. And I'll say this, this is a freebie, no charge for this. It's a little hard. But if your life isn't raising, if your life of faith in Jesus Christ isn't raising any questions with anybody, it might be time for a real hardcore evaluation of where are you in faith with Jesus Christ? Have you just settled in and gotten real comfortable and 
just sort of taken it all for granted. Yeah, I'm saved. Yeah, I'm going to heaven, but it's a life of faith out on the ragged edge where if God doesn't show up, there's trouble. That's the intention of all of us following Jesus Christ. is isn't just for a few crazy people, a few folks from Scripture. It's all of us. That's what God intends for every single one of us. This guy named Yan Martell wrote this book called The Life of Pi. Cool deal. Uh, Martell's going to be the MSU convocation speaker next fall. Martell's going to be in Bozeman speaking at the start of the school year next year. It'll be cool. And that book, this story, it's been made into a movie now, is a story about this zoo collection that was being transported from India to Canada when the boat that all of that zoo is on sinks. And the story's told from the perspective of Pi, the zoo owner's son. And if you don't know the story, Pi finds himself adrift in a lifeboat, get this, with a hyena, a zebra, an orangutan, and a 450-pound royal Bengal tiger in a lifeboat. Whoa. And near the end of the movie, Pi was prompted by two Japanese insurance investigators. He was sort of coerced into telling another story about all that unfolded. And so he does. He told another story about sharing the lifeboat with his mother, the cook, and another sailor. And it's a brutal story. Story of murder and so. But which story is true? Both stories fit the known facts. And later on, Pi is sitting with his friend retelling all of the story, including the part where the Japanese insurance investigators make him tell another story and Well, watch this. Can I ask you something? Of course. I've told you two stories about what happened out on the ocean. Neither explains what caused the sinking of the ship. And no one can prove which story is true and which is not. In both stories, the ship sinks, my family dies, and I suffer. True. So which story do you prefer? The one with the tiger. That's the better story. Thank you. And so it goes with God. And so it goes with God. And so it goes with God. Absolutely. We need to persuade people that our story, that the story of God is true. But people are only going to explore its truthfulness if we first persuade them that God's story is the better story. Which means that every single day, Day in, day out, minute by minute, we must be addressing the hearts of the people in our lives. Addressing the hearts of the people in our lives before we ever begin to address all the questions in their heads. Folks, we have the best story. 
The story of Yahweh, the story of God and his son, Jesus Christ, is better than any of the alternative narratives floating around out there. But we must first awaken inside of people a desire for God. We must help them want Christianity to be true. Take your stuff and set it aside if you would. Could I ask you to close your eyes and bow your heads and just speak to the Lord about the things we've been thinking about together? And before you get too comfortable in this moment, will you pull your mobile device out right now, your phone, your smartphone, your flip phone, your camera phone. Four oh six two oh nine eight eight two nine. Four oh six two oh nine eight eight two nine. And would you text us what it looks like right now in your life to build bridges with the people who you're co-journeying with? What's happening out there? What obstacles are the people in your world bumping into that you're like, ah, we're hung up on this one. Let us come alongside and coach you a bit. Maybe the Lord used you to build a fantastic bridge with somebody. Tell us that story. My buddy was hung up on this. The Lord gave me words and scripture and we navigated that and now we're on to the next tell us that story. Or maybe you're somebody like right here now who you have obstacles that are keeping you from faith in Jesus Christ. Personally, you have objections, you have questions. Will you just be real candid and let us come alongside you? Text that in and we'll be in touch. We won't harass you. We'll have a gentle conversation. And right now, with heads bowed and eyes closed, God's inviting all of us who have not yet taken the step of saving faith in Jesus Christ to do that very thing today. Jesus is inviting you into his story today. He's inviting you to salvation from your sin. He's inviting you to the mission that you were made for. He's inviting you to live out all your days for him. Why not right now? Why not today? Take the step of trusting him with your whole heart and your whole life. You can do that by praying along with me. Jesus, I get it. I'm a sinner. I'm absolutely incapable of saving myself. And by faith, Jesus, I gratefully receive your gift of salvation. I trust you as Lord, Savior, boss, ruler of my life. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sin. Thank you for rising from the dead for me. 
Thank you for giving me the gift of eternal life that starts right here, right now in you. Here's my life. And maybe you're a person today who's stepping into that saving faith in Jesus Christ. If you are, that's the biggest deal in your whole life. Because it's such a big deal around here, we invite you to tell us when you make that decision. So I'm going to ask you to do that with me right now, to tell me that you made that decision. And it's just you, me, and God. Every head is bowed. Every eye is closed. If you prayed with me just then to give your heart and life to Jesus, would you just slip your hand up right now, right where you are? You can do that right now. They're in the back. A couple of, yeah. Way to go. Yes. And, and there, yes, sir, absolutely. And you too, in the back to my left, yes. So Jesus, we say thank you. We say thank you for your life and for your death and for your rising and for your abiding presence via your Holy Spirit in our lives. Thank you for the heart work that you're doing in us, the heart surgery even right here, right now. Jesus, I pray that a major component of what you're doing in our hearts would be to compel us to live life in partnership with you in the work that you're doing in the lives of people all around us. That every single other thing we do in our lives would pale in comparison to that. That we would be co-journers. That we would be bridge builders. Partnering with your Holy Spirit God for the salvation of souls. For the privilege of seeing your sons and daughters come home, Jesus. Send us on that mission, please.